What is up, guys? To everyone who is tuning in and listening, thank you for joining us for another podcast of Are We Podcasting Yet? The podcast that's really still just a YouTube channel that we have dreams of one day possibly becoming an actual podcast. And I'm not, I think we did that in reverse, but hey, you know what? Thanks for being here anyway. Season two, we will be on Spotify. Yes. has, has Spotify confirmed that they will allow us to do this? No. <laughs> um, today we've got my longtime friend, uh, Elliot. Elliot Passe Freeman. Am I saying your entire name right? You got it. That's as, that's as good as it gets. Um, met Elliot in Bangkok. We uh, started hanging out, going to Models Nights together there. Um, Elliot went to Harvard and Yale, if I'm not mistaken. And yep. you worked for the UN, lived in Myanmar for a while and Bangkok, and currently are a professor at National University of Singapore. You got it right. Wow. I like I like to think that we were model employees back then. We we, we were. Yes. <laughs> um, I like it. He's yeah, gonna man, be well quite, here. Quite the CV Elliot has. Uh, so you, you probably think pretty high of yourself, I imagine. <laughs> I do. I do. It's it's actually it's required. Uh, it's one of the yeah. rules over here. There's a lot of rules. Um, so many in fact, rules. yesterday when I, when I did one of these things, I, I walked in and the producer immediately said, you didn't even say hello. He said, we need another button up. We need you to unroll your pants, tuck in your shirt. And then they, uh, a sub producer was asked to go out and buy me socks. So um, this is much more my speed. I'm glad to be with, with you guys and, and not. Wow. Uh, in that See, we, we actually have designated naked time. Yeah, Justin has literally done a shirts off for democracy moment, which is perfectly fitting for our conversation today. It, it really is. is. So, so the yeah, reason, Elliot, oh, go ahead, brother. The reason why I wanted go to bring Justin. Elliot on right now is because Elliot is kind of an expert on all things Myanmar. And uh, maybe you could kind of just fill us in on your background as to why that is and why anyone would want to talk to you about what's going on in Myanmar right now. Sure. So, yeah, usually that, that doesn't get me very far, being an expert on Myanmar. But uh, right now, uh, as of February 1st, there was a, a coup by the, the military. And um, the Myanmar's history has been beset by sort of political violence and um, occupation of power by this particular military. But in 2010, 11, they started this transition towards democracy. And in 2015, there were free and fair elections held. And then another election held in 2020 in November, which was perhaps not completely free because many of the ethnic peoples and because of ongoing conflicts weren't allowed to vote, but it was definitely uh, fair to the extent that the votes uh, were counted. But, you know, a lot of failing democracies around the globe have been exporting this sort of evidence-free challenge of electoral results, the USA. And so, the Myanmar uh, military essentially played that exact same Trumpian handbook and said, look, there were 10 million votes that were uh, fake. And then the election commission said, okay, that's, that's a very serious allegation. Can we see some evidence? And they said, no, we're just gonna take back control of the country. So on February 1st, they put the elected um, president, his name is Win Myint, and more importantly, the sort of person who stands behind the throne, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, who's this long-term laureate, very controversial figure, beloved, but also um, has defended a genocide recently. So there's a lot of stuff going on, but she is also in prison or rather in house arrest right now. And uh, the government, the military government now reigns again after um, supposedly agreeing to stand back. 
So it's a very devastating time for, for Myanmar people, but oddly enough, and, and I hesitate you know, to say this because tomorrow, of course, the violence could come. It's actually kind of a hopeful moment. And I can talk about that a little bit. And just as a sort of teaser, there's a, there was a general feeling that this transition wasn't everything it was cracked up to be. You know, you, you got to try after 60 years of military rule, mm -hmm. but there, the structural conditions were so constraining that it didn't, it was more like a sham democracy. And so this coup, oddly enough, has really kind of put the nail in the coffin or whatever metaphor you'd like to choose about why that it, democracy isn't really um, viable. And now it allows people um, for the first time in 10 years to start to imagine what a real democracy might look like. Interesting. Okay. I, I think probably people don't really get that uh, the democracy they came to be um, wasn't really legit. Could you go into more detail about that? Absolutely. So um, in, when you have a pacted transition, right? When a transition from a military government to a constitutional one occurs and you haven't killed all the people in the military, you have to deal with those suckers. Um, mm -hmm. You have to essentially cut them a deal in order to give up their absolute control for something that they want. And so the deal that was struck was that the military would retain 25% of the seats of the entire parliament and would also retain a bunch of economic control. And of course it would still get to be the military. And by economic control, there are these big holding companies. So in Singapore, you have Tomasek, which is this big holding company that itself holds lots of other companies. And essentially in Myanmar, it's much more resource extraction oriented. Have this, um, these holding companies that control natural gas and oil that's flowing um, these offshore blocks in Western Myanmar all the way into China. And, and that of course becomes a major geopolitical issue um, and a way of, that the military is able to insulate themselves from so, a lot of threat because they have these resources and they have China as a, a trading partner. Now, uh, for that reason, or so, so that's sort of the political economic conditions and having 25% of the seats allows them to kind of control things. So they really, then, e even though they, they kind of, allowed there to be a democratic government, uh, they weren't giving up all their power. They were keeping just enough of it so that they could do exactly what they're doing right now whenever they wanted. So exactly. Elliot, I'm sorry, just on this exact topic, a question further about the government's kind of political power that it had, or actually the military than the political power they had. They had a political party that represented the military, right? That was yep. in opposite, or that was against the opposition. Was it understood by the people like most voters in Myanmar that that was just very clearly stated that that is the military's political party or were there people in Myanmar who were very strongly for it? Yeah that's a good question it's hard to know exactly what to make of this proxy party called the USDP because on one hand they are the military's party but they're also an opposition party now and so if you're going to oppose the NLD, the, the main party from the right uh, and in the sense of wanting more, uh, maybe uh, less concessions to ethnic minority groups. Um, uh, if you want a, a tougher you know, general approach to uh, things like law and order, you might support them without supporting the military itself and certainly without supporting a coup. So one of the questions that, you know, okay. There's a list of a thousand long of things that we don't know. And I think that's something that's really important for 
our many listeners out there to keep in mind is that anyone like me <laughs> comes on talking about stuff related to Myanmar right now, you have to know, uh, and many of them won't be as honest as I am, but we're mostly full of it. Like we just don't right. know a lot of the reasons why this has occurred. So we're speculating, we're reading the tea leaves the same way that people have been doing in Myanmar for a long time, trying to figure out why exactly this occurred. And let, let me talk a little bit about why that's an interesting question, because you might say, well, yeah, power's nice. Why not take it back? Well, here's the interesting issue is that the military kind of had the best of both worlds under the last 10 year scenario, because they were able to have a, you know, a putatively democratic government, right? Led by a Nobel laureate, democratically elected, and they were able to do all the things they wanted to do. They were able to commit genocide against the Rohingya people. And then Aung San Suu Kyi got blamed for it. It's not to say she wasn't culpable. She certainly got out in front of that issue and basically created no daylight between herself and the military. She, mm. uh, so her country was accused of genocide and she went to the International Court of Justice in The Hague to defend uh, the country. She didn't have to do that. She basically said, ah, you guys wanna um, put a face on this genocide? Make it be mine, um, which is very, bold and I obviously terrible move. Why do we think, why do we, why would she do that? Like, why do we think she would do that? She's seen as this, like, I mean, this almost goddess of peace, right? And humanitarianism yep. around mm -hmm. the world. And then it's like the rug got pulled out from underneath her feet in this one moment. Like, why would she take such, I don't know if it's risk or, or yeah. what? So I have a, I have a short article where I said on this and I actually compared her to a world wrestling federation heel turn right? Where the person who's supposed to be a good guy takes off the mask and yeah. is actually a villain. And she almost luxuriated in it, in the sense that oh, every really? time someone tried to say, but aren't you, you're this person we, we expected you to be. And she said, I've always been a politician. I've tried to tell you that, you know, in, so, her, in her received pronunciation, Oxford yeah. uh, English. And well, with that being said, her being, a, her being a politician, do you think it's because she just kind of thought, I mean, as, as I hate to say that any kind of genocide is for the greater good, uh, obviously not. But I mean, for her standpoint, being like, if I crack down on this right now and I speak vocally against it, they're gonna put me back in jail. And then again, just the military is just gonna take over. And then the rest of the Myanmar people are gonna suffer anyway. So for her, it was the lesser of two evils to just kind of be like, okay. Yep. So that's a great read. I think there's two issues at play. First, that's the, uh, the main one. That's also the one that she and her followers have used to deflect accusations right. uh, that she's defending on the side. The other issue is that she just didn't really like those people very much. Yeah. Um, and I think like based on oh. everything that we know about what she has uh, said, both uh, like, you know, the things that she has said. So some people have accused her of being silent on the Rohingya issue. Mm. She's not been silent. Really? She's been vocal about how she doesn't believe they're citizens. She believes that, as right. she put it to a BBC reporter once, Muslim power wor worldwide is very scary and it's understandable mm. that Myanmar people are afraid of it. And it's like, okay, that's very Islamophobic, but yeah. what does it have to do with the genocide that's going on here? Well, what she's trying to do is create a bridge between this very small minority in the corner of the country and a broader sort of global jihad as if those two are connected, which they're not. Yeah. And there's been no credible evidence ever linking uh, these broader global jihadist movements that do exist certainly to the Rohingya issue. But she's essentially providing discursive cover uh, for that sort of hysteria that would uh, use the genocide as a way of defending the country against a broader Muslim horde. 
So on one hand, it's definitely a strategic maneuver on her part, 2017 defense of the genocide and then on all the defense after. But I think it also uh, doesn't betray, right? It doesn't betray anything that she's actually ever said. And so um, from a human rights perspective, it doesn't make any sense. But from a nationalist perspective, where if you listen to her, you know, revisionism, what she says about herself in the last 10 years, she likes to say, I've always been a politician. I've always been committed to the rights of Myanmar citizens. Now, this is one of the main problems of kind of like global Westphalian liberalism, right? You only have to care for the people who are your citizens. And if these people have been stripped of their citizenship, which happened through a bunch of, you know, political events that take us into the history, including the 1982 citizenship law, all this stuff is a little bit in the weeds, but because the Rohingya aren't citizens, she doesn't really have to care for them. And hence she's able mm. to use them as a sort of scapegoat to make herself look good to both the left, well, not the left, but the center and the right. And actually the irony here is that this pissed off the military a lot too, because they wanted to use the Rohingya issue as a wedge between her and the populace. And she said, no, I'm not gonna let you wow. do that. I'm gonna be as, bigoted as awful as you guys are and that ended up kind of back backfiring but to just briefly return to that main point is that they did have her taking the blame internationally mm -hmm. for this genocide and they were kind of able to benefit from it so they had all the control they had all the power i mean basically all the military power they had all of the economic might they were you know accumulating lots of capital um, through these massive resource extraction projects. And essentially they were able to keep the money flowing with the West because you, know, you could at least say, well, just wait, just wait. It's you know, growing mm -hmm. pains, things are getting better. Mm -hmm. Little genocide, we can wait, we can wait. Right. And what's really fascinating about right now is that it, this coup has forced people who otherwise would have said, we should just keep waiting, don't, um, you know, don't spoil a fragile democracy, we can still get there. And I understand mm -hmm. that position. I mean people are on the ground are devastated and they had faith in this thing actually turning into something good, even though it probably wasn't that good right now. Now they're forced to reassess. They're forced to say, okay, that thing that we did, that was a sham. And now we have to think beyond it and get beyond the structural condition allowed that to in here. And so the irony here is that, uh, Justin, I see you're wearing a black shirt. Black has actually become the color of these protest movements. And it's important because black is not red. Red is the color of the opposition. And if you're wearing red, you're basically saying, take us back to the status quo before uh, the coup. Take us back mm -hmm. to the 31st of January, where the red, the NLD, Aung San Suu Kyi's party is in power. The green, the military are kind of in the barracks, kind of out fighting wars against the ethnic peoples. But black is an explicit move on the part of these protesters, pretty spontaneous to get beyond that sort of dyad and start to say, okay, what would this next phase look like? What would true democracy look like? Mm -hmm. Now, of course, again, as I say, uh, when the violence comes tomorrow, all this sort of optimism is going to look a little bit silly, but it does at least reflect what people are feeling on the ground. And I've been, you know, spent the last 24 hours times seven, whatever that is, uh, 168 hours. <laughs> I mean, I have slept a little bit, but I've been talking to a lot of people on the yeah. ground and they really do feel like this is a, a really powerful, important movement. So like, I want to take a moment to describe what the scenes on the ground look like. You have, yeah, you have like mostly young women, uh, a lot of Generation Z kids uh, who are holding up placards, telling the, um, <laughs> in very ribald ways, telling the, the general to go fuck himself uh, and in very wow. creative ways, holding um, funerals for him, 
uh, talking about how they're going to fuck his mother to death. I don't, you might have to bleep this. No, um, you don't. No, that goes no, in. Okay. That's part of yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. I, I can even give you, I can send you the, the protest signs. I, I swear my translations are legit. Um, and why this is important is that for a long time, uh, protest was kind of led by a set of like vanguardist activists who I respect more than anyone in the world, but it was a pretty specific thing that they would lead and everyone else would follow. And what's really interesting about this moment is that it's kind of being led by the young people who are out there yeah. kind of not taking orders from anybody, not looking for leaders. And there's one, my favorite sign was actually in English and it says, there are no supreme leaders. And I think that's a shot at the military, but it's also kind of a shot at Aung San Suu Kyi. Aung San Suu Kyi, yeah. For a long time, last 10 years, has kind of said, and one time she literally said, vote for us and we will make all the decisions. And I think that young people in particular are rejecting that. One other thing is that the Rohingya minority, which I spoke about a moment ago, uh, they live a very um, imperiled life and mm -hmm. remain undercover, even in cosmopolitan spaces like Yangon, they try to blend in with the normal population. And the irony mm. there is that people hate Rohingya without ever realizing that they've seen Rohingya on the streets and not known that they were who they were. And that's the, like, the kind of frustrating part about uh, hatred is that it prevents you from seeing the thing that you actually hate. And if you mm. saw it, you might not hate it as much. So what these people are doing because of this particular moment, they're out in the streets and I have like probably a, I have 12 or 13 different sign boards and different people holding up signs that say, we Rohingya are against the military. And what is really powerful about that is that it says, it, it basically says, look, we were a subject of genocide and we're still on your side, even though you weren't on our side. More importantly, yeah. we were subject to this military. We, more than you guys on the ground, you know, living your normal life in Yangon, we see what's actually at stake here because we've gone through it. We know what the military can do in the space of exception. And so we're kind of on the same side. Now, who knows when, when the sort of ebullience and the sort of, uh, you know, uh, that special feeling, the affective feeling you have during a protest, when that starts to go away, when people get back to their real life, will the hatred of Rohingya reemerge? It may, but at least it's beautiful to see, you know, people on the street kind of standing, not eye to eye where they're like looking at each other's difference, but kind of hand in hand looking at a common enemy. So there's been a lot of that Rohingya and the Buddhist population kind of together. Yeah. Uh, in yeah, I, mean, I don't want to overstate it, but yeah. it, it at least is existing on the streets. And that to me is pretty cool. That is super cool. Um, I, I so, got a question. Oh, go. The protesters in the streets, right? And how are they mobilizing and how are they organizing this? Because hasn't there been a lot of effort by the military to restrict not just freedom of speech, but specifically organizing? Yeah. Um, yeah, and one of the many um, unfortunate aspects of the Aung San Suu Kyi uh, era is that she had more political prisoners in prison than the previous military uh, leader, wow. Thane Sane. So from 2010 to 2015, there was a proxy party, the USDP. They won because the NLD sat it out. And they actually did a lot of pretty good things relative to what we expected and allowed. And that's when I was doing most of my on the ground field work with these activists who were kind of like pushing against an open door. They're like, really, we can do this? Okay, let's go. Mm. Um, and then oddly enough, when Suu Kyi got in power, there was a sort of that door slammed shut. 
and I, I wrote something back in 2016 mm. where I came back expecting to see them because I went back to, to the States for a while, expected to hear all the new things they were up to and they were never more frustrated because they had basically been told explicitly by the lady, you guys played your role, now we're in democracy, please fuck off. And that was quite devastating for them. Um, so what we see now, however, is a bunch of people who are used to having to organize under repressive conditions. And so this is old hat for them. Uh, yeah, okay. They were able to organize ma massive uprisings in 88 and 2007, uh, way before the internet. So 2007, what do you mean that's before the internet? Well, Myanmar it was, and so the internet wasn't really free. It was very difficult to, you couldn't even use Gmail until 2011. And so it wasn't a place where everyone had a handphone until probably 2012 when there was a huge explosion of uh, handphone penetration. And as a result, the military tried to play cat and mouse or whack-a-mole or whatever metaphor you want to use was shutting down the ways that people were organizing and they just kept switching platforms. So on Friday, they shut down Facebook and everyone got uh, VPNs or switched to Twitter or switched to Signal. And so there were different ways of organizing there. The other thing is that because people had organized before um, relying on this sort of digital communication, there were a lot of, like, there's only so many places you can go in Yangon. There's a lot of ways to mm. call people out in the streets. Uh, and so people were basically taking their cues from the previous styles of, of protest that, uh, that they were, are, that were kind of in their DNA at this point. Mm. Wow. So, I mean, it, I mean, obviously kind of a lot of what you're saying right now holds a fair bit of optimism, but is the optimism that people there on the ground warranted? Like, is there a positive way out of this for them? And how likely is that? Yeah, that's, I mean, that in a way is the question. Um, so we've seen defections by the police in four major cities now. So we've seen it in Patain, Nipidal, which is odd because it's right at the center of military power, Magwe, mm. Uh, which is a division not a city but I, i'm not exactly sure which city and then in machina up in the north and the police have always been kind of like the military's little brother um and so they're not taken quite as seriously but anytime the police defect in a situation where law and order is trying to be restored it's a pretty big deal mm -hmm. um and so you're also seeing a general strike by all of the uh the ministries so the ministry of general education is out um most of the ministry of health is out except for people who are emergency workers who are trying to keep those uh, folks, you know, people who are dying alive. And so you have a sort of collapse of a lot of the institutions that would keep um, the state functioning. Now, the, the way this cuts both ways, however, is that the military doesn't really care. Uh, right. And what I mean by that is that they're insulated from the sort of mandate of the people. They don't rely on tax revenue in order to get their money. And so and this is a kind of a classic rent-based state, so like a state like Saudi Arabia, that once the oil starts flowing, you don't need to listen to the people because the oil is worth so much and it costs so little to get out of the ground. Very similar for these guys. So the fact that the, um, the institutions aren't functioning is symbolically useful, but it's not going to make the military collapse necessarily. Um, what is kind of interesting, though, is uh, the, for a long time, the military has been able to kind of divide and rule with the ethnic armed organizations by picking them off one by one, uh, by cutting deals. And one of the things that they had going for them was the idea that um, there was a national peace process that everyone would be cut into. The last 10 years, that hasn't gone very well, um, mostly because the military isn't very trustworthy. And what we see now is, you know, the sort of... Uh, puts paid to the suspicions that they weren't trustworthy. And so as a result, you have a lot more unity or potential unity than you had before. 
So there's always been a division between people like Aung San Suu Kyi, who are Burmans, the main majority group, and all the ethnic armed groups. They're not all armed, of course, but you know these are organizations of violence that represent people who sometimes are like, I don't want to be represented by you. But anyway, they're the ones with the guns, so they, that's kind of why they matter in the politics. So you have these groups who they don't trust the military, but they don't trust Aung San Suu Kyi either. And so what this particular coup moment does is it throws all the cards up in the air, and it, they have to they have to settle in a totally different way. And what I mean by that is that it doesn't mean that he's necessarily going to be able to forge a union with the ethnic armed organizations, but it makes it a hell of a lot more likely that she, that she will than last week or two weeks ago, rather. And basically, all these armed organizations are releasing statements that say, we told you so, we knew this was a sham, now this thing is over, the peace process is over, we have to go back to square one. And that does give me some hope that uh, the military may have overplayed its hand here. It's definitely not as strong as it, it thinks it is strategically. And it, um, what I'm hoping for uh, is an internal coup where the, another mm -hmm. faction in the military says, uh, we may have misplayed things here. And Bozo, um, you know, Napoleon up front here, who's mm -hmm. famously very short, uh, hence the Napoleon reference, um, <laughs> it has basically gotten, uh, has misread the situation and we need him. And so that's one of the things that you'll hear on um, like talking head things, not me, uh, other talking heads <laughs> will say that, that this whole coup is a sort of um, interpersonal conflict between Suchi and the Napoleon guy, whose name is Men Online. Right. And that isn't untrue, right? People do dislike each other mm -hmm. and people still make choices. Um, but if you're Men Online, the Napoleon guy, and you're responsible for this vast apparatus of violence and capital accumulation, you're not free to just make decisions on a whim because if you do, you know, your colleagues will hurt you and your family. Mm -hmm. um, and as a result, um, that suggests that he did, uh, at least at that moment, operate with the backing of the rest of the generals and the people under him, but that doesn't mean he will forever. And one of the things that the, the activists are hoping right now is that by mobilizing a sort of general opposition to this, uh, other generals will basically come out and say, yeah, this was a bad idea. Because the only way this can go back to where it was before mm. is if some of the main players are drastically changed. I'm, I, I was thinking about how to, to describe it in a less um, abstruse academic way. And I thought about, you know, like you have your friends and they're constantly breaking up and getting back together. And you're like, mm. oh my God, just you know, break up already. This is so miserable. This is embarrassing all of us. Like no, no one wants to see Myanmar do that thing where it's like democracy, coup, democracy, coup. I mean, obviously in Southeast Asia, that happens a lot. Thailand, yeah. of course, being, being the model. But I don't think that Suchi can go back uh, with Men Online still as the commander in chief. You know the old expression, fooled me once, shame on you, fooled me once, mm -hmm. don't get fooled again. Okay, that's the George Bush ruining of the, the speech. Uh, but that's a kind of issue. I don't think she'll be able to go back. But if there's an internal coup and another general emerges and says, we're going to do things a little differently, then perhaps things can get resettled. Now, I know that's a little bit in the weeds for your, for your podcast. And I also know that's not ideal, right? Ideally, we would want a massive yeah. people power uprising. The military realizes the error of their ways. They put the guns down and they sing, uh, you know, Kumbaya. Kumbaya. It's not reality. That's not reality, but I do think that there are better realities that we can get to. Whether I think that's likely, I, I don't think so. Like, I honestly think that if, you know, you take the parsimonious path 
of the path of like the things Occam's razor, what will most likely happen is that after a couple more days, there'll be a pretty violent uh, crackdown and a lot of people will, will probably die. So you um, think the violence is almost certain in the next week? Yeah, I, I do. And, and whether how extreme that violence is and how people respond to it, whether by doubling down or whether by, you know, understandably going home, um, will determine the extent of the violence. Um, I also think that if I'm being very pessimistic, Aung San Suu Kyi will live out the rest of her days in house arrest and will never be allowed to return to power, um, mostly because she hasn't played by the very narrow set of rules that the military has laid down for her, mostly along the symbolic lines of um, not paying them the sort of obeisance that they believe that they uh, deserve. And, she believes she's the rightful owner of the country, um, for better or for worse. I, I think that she can be very imperious. Like she can act mm -hmm. like, like, I think one of the odd things about she and the military is that there, Freud has this idea called the narcissism of petty differences. Like you mm -hmm. end up hating the people that you are afraid you're most like. You know, someone who's like totally right. different than you, they don't really make much sense to you, but that guy who kind of like has the, the same uh, narcissisms that you have, for instance, you, you hate him the most, that kind of thing. I mean, we all know that being former, former models, you know, that one guy who has the extra level of six pack. You're like, yeah, I hated guy. those guys. What's wrong with him? That guy. <laughs> <laughs> Which way are you judging? Yeah. <laughs> and so as a result, I think that they're very similar. Aung San Suu Kyi mm. and the generals, they both believe that they should stand above the people and, and be the ones who get to ultimately make the decisions and ratify them. And I don't think she was ever willing to uh, play by the rules that the military laid down. Now, that's a little bit more speculative, obviously. So there's a real interesting mixture of sort of instrumental yeah. uh, political maneuvers here where like about money, about violence, about um, you know who stays in jail and who doesn't. And then there's also these sort of symbolic ones about like what does, what do the aesthetics of power look like and who gets to wield them? Right. So you were talking about really the most likely path for this to end positively would be that there's other generals or other powers in the government that are kind of like, hey, our boy here in charge overplayed his hand. We need to kind of get him out of here and coup the coup, so to speak. Coup the coup. Yep. Coup the coup um, and, and, and do this a different way. Have there been any generals or military leaders that you feel are most likely to go down that path? Or has there been anybody that even have shown that they maybe think that way or would be likely to do that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, unfortunately, I, I don't really do that sort of stuff. Like I, I just don't know the, the, the generals that well. Um, what I will say is that historically, um, the Myanmar military almost, and this is like one of those, you know, um, one of those records you don't really want to hold, but mm. they have, they hold the record for having kind of the most coherent and uh, least internally divided military government. So even though there are shakeups, it never cracks the, the broader right. facade. Um, so like in 2003, there was a, I mean, I hesitate to call him progressive, but there was a, a general who wanted to start this roadmap to democracy that took us all the way to 2015. And he was this, uh, he was actually rounded up, all of his people were rounded up and thrown in jail um, a year later. Um, right. And so his legacy kind of lived on, but he, and he's actually fine now. 
uh, he like runs an art gallery of all things. Um, but yeah, uh, golden parachute. <laughs> um, but he, but like basically, the military never never cracked, and so um, it's possible that there would be another kind of thing like that in which yeah. the the coup would be more of a power realignment as as a china called the the coup a cabinet reshuffle uh, that was their official take which, which brings um, me to my yeah. next question cabinet reshuffle how yeah, so much that. how much uh does china kind of influence the military in myanmar and does their the military being in power benefit them in any way yeah, so this is a huge issue that everyone is debating. And I think um, it's a little bit less of an issue than the, I mean, I'm not a China expert. Um, mm. And so I'll say that at the start. Um, but what I, so people kind of like who know the Beijing mind, uh, you know, the, the CCP mind might have different takes. And I've seen a lot of them. But I think that China doesn't care who's in power, um, as long as their projects continue to, to run. And I think they would prefer the set of leaders who allow those projects to run most efficiently. So China um, gets its oil through and, it, and hence its energy stability through the Straits of Malacca, pretty close to where I'm, I'm sitting. I think Justin, you're saying, Alan, I don't know where you are. But you're a little, you know, I think you're, you're not, closer not than I am. Okay. Ba China barely. <laughs> barely, I'm further yeah. south. Um, but since they uh, established what's called the Shui gas pipeline, which runs from the Bay of Bengal um, over there in Western Myanmar, across Myanmar to Guang Guangxi and Yunnan area in China, China's been able to solve that problem uh, pretty effectively. They were able to get that project up and running across different regimes, military regime, mm -hmm. quasi-civilian, and then the Aung San Suu Kyi regime. I don't think they see any reason why working with her was better or worse than working with the generals. Um, I, I think that's reflecting the statement about this being a cabinet reshuffle because from that's not just them being cynical. And I think I, as I put it somewhere else, gaslighting uh, the international community. Yeah. I just don't think they care. Um, and, mm -hmm. and what I mean by that is that they they do see it as a cabinet reshuffle because for them it is that as long as the as the pipes remain flowing. Yeah, tap whatever the metaphor is there. Um, I think they're basically happy, and I think they like stability, but they don't need it. Um, right. Like, look at all the stuff they're doing in in Africa. A lot of those uh, places aren't particularly stable, but they're able to make it work. And I think Myanmar kind of fits that general bill. Um, not particularly stable, but they're able to do a lot of projects there nonetheless. And I think that's why um, you know they blocked the Security Council resolution that was very. Uh, condemnatory, but they didn't block the resolution in the end. Uh, you know, they they just watered it down a little bit. And I think that's a general way of of looking at China. It's not it's not the it does insulate the generals from Western sanctions. But you know what else insulated the generals from Western sanctions? The political economy of resource extraction. Mm. You know, Western sanctions can't really touch an economy that isn't really based on exporting products to the West. Now there will be some pain in that regard, like H and M sources from. Yangon, and I don't think they'll probably stay for much longer. Mm. But the generals look next door. They look at Thailand and they say, that place has had coups since 1932, more coups than you can count, I think up in the 20s. And Western capital still flows. We still spend our time at, at Bed Supper Club. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I think we, I was we, we went through a couple of those coups. I think we were together at, at Koi the we night We were of... together at Koi when tanks were rolling down the street 
on Sukhumvit, the like off. a block away. They just turned the lights off and, and said, we did shots. quietly. Yeah, as, as one should. Yes. Shots being a sort coup of shots. play on words. Yeah. Coup shots. Yeah, <laughs> yeah hashtag coup shots. Oh to, be, oh, to be young. I know. I don't feel any more mature. That's the problem. Uh, <laughs> and yet the shots, they hurt a little bit more now. Uh, but do. anyway, I think, I think what the military is looking for is a sort of Thailand option, right? They say, why can't we have the best of both worlds? Now, it takes hmm. a lot longer to get to a place where that Thailand is, is at. And I think it takes a, a sort of visionary and pretty, you know, hardcore leader like uh, King Bumibon to get you there. And hmm. it, they're not there yet. But I think that's their sort of end game. That's what they imagine. Interesting. Um, but whether they can get there uh, remains to be seen. Do you um, feel that what's going on right now in Myanmar, does that affect the region in Southeast Asia at all? Does it destabilize anything? Does it matter to the other countries really? Mm -hmm. Question. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not a particular expert on, on ASEAN, um, mm -hmm. but generally I would say ASEAN kind of coaxed them very gently to, or help be a sort of honest broker to get the military to this um, disciplined democracy that they were in until a couple of days ago. Um, but they were quite different organization then. And since then, you know, Thailand's become a, a pretty official military government. Duterte is doing whatever he's doing in the Philippines. And those were two of the more democratic countries back in the 2000s. And so as a result, ASEAN has, I think, less um, influence, uh, less leverage, and also less interest than it did in the past. Certainly, um, if it didn't say anything on the Rohingya issue, uh, I doubt that they're really going to do much on, on, on this one. Some were they quiet on the Rohingya issue? Yeah, I mean, Malaysia was the only place to really say much. Mm -hmm. And even then, it, it was a little bit of a sort of, um, it could have been accused as being a sort of cynical maneuver to look good for domestic audiences, um, mm -hmm. as most of these things are. Um, so another thing that's kind of interesting about the sort of international context is that um, Aung San Suu Kyi, when she got out in front of the genocide, she put her former supporters um, you know, on both sides of the aisle in the US Congress in a difficult spot because she basically exposed herself as being the defender of the indefensible. And they were caught being like the woman we supported for 20 years turned out to betray us and to betray the causes we thought that she stood for. Now, the United States Congress standing on the moral high ground is always one of the most odious and least attractive things to watch play out because it's so yeah. hypocritical. But mm -hmm. let's take Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International. They are less cynical and less hypocritical. And I think it hurt them too. And I think everyone's been looking for a way to rehabilitate Suchi. And one of the ways that uh, she's gonna get rehabilitated is through this coup. She's gonna be able to say, and gosh, you're already seeing this on, on supporting you know, social media, that look, she didn't really like the genocide, despite all the things she mm. said and all the actions she took, she was forced to do that because of the position she was in from the military. And if you want proof, look at the coup. And so that kind of speaks to Justin, your point you know, 30 minutes ago about her needing to be strategic. I think the international context, the US loves nothing more than a, a pretty simple uh, set of narratives of uh, victims, heroes, mm. and saviors. Uh, sorry, yeah, and so, um, sorry, victims, uh, villains and saviors. Villains saviors uh, yeah. And the victim, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi has played that role really well. The, the military is a pretty good villain and they're really leaning into that right now. And, and uh, the US likes to imagine itself as a savior. So it'll be interesting to see if, if she ends up getting, maybe not fully rehabilitated, but at least people will say, look, some of the things she said weren't the nicest, but 
the military were the ones who killed all those people. And, that, and that's true. Um, mm. Anyone who tells you that Facebook caused genocide should beware that Facebook didn't, I mean, they obviously are not the nicest characters in the world. And we can argue about their role in fermenting hate speech around the world if we want. But the people who caused the Rohingya genocide were the generals. They did. They're the ones mm. who killed all those people. No person on the ground who hates Muslims in Yangon had anything to do with the deaths of those people right. 800 miles away in Western Rakhine State. Uh, so anyway, I think that that's another interesting sort of international um, uh, wrinkle to keep an eye on. Yeah. So for as far as uh, the West and their role, like the U.S., uh, European countries, and, and even Amnesty Inter International and kind of their posturing on this matter and them kind of being like, no, bad Myanmar. Mm -hmm. Does that do anything like? Yeah, I mean, I think that these guys had to have considered all these sort of issues. And yeah. I think- They don't care. They don't care. And mm. the ultimate, <clears throat> excuse me, ultimately mm -hmm. they're, they're kind of, they see themselves as, a, as accountable to their version of, of power. And, and they always view, uh, I, I remember joking that sometimes it was better for the US, you know, people would say, don't you wanna raise awareness about what's going on in Myanmar? And I would say, actually, it's better if you don't know because you guys saying stuff just causes more problems. It just allows them to dig in even deeper. I would say ignorance is best. And I was being a little bit cheeky at the time. This is yeah. back in like 2004 and 2005. Um, my God, I've been doing this for a little bit too long, huh? And we're back <laughs> to where we started. Um, but, you know, in, in a certain way, people do, you know, in these kind of uh, these symbolic fights, they, um, you know, you respond to, you know, people dig in their positions. We see that sort of po um, partisan division in American politics these days. And I think mm -hmm. there's a sort of race towards the, the more extreme. And I personally think the American needs to get a lot more extreme, but not to the right, but to the left. But that's a, that's a different part. <laughs> we can argue that later. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ellie, I want to go towards the more optimistic side of what you think might happen now. And uh, you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, do you say the most optimistic outlook that you could see would be the, uh, there being a coup, like Justin said, within the coup and some generals taking over power of the military. Um, what if what we would all really love to happen, which is a return to absolute free democracy, right? What if that was the outcome? If that is, and whether or not it's possible is another debate. But if that is the outcome, what does that look like? Or how, how, how long does that take? How, does, how do those steps start happening? Does it take like a massive overstep by the military then for, and then for like, a like an international, um, I don't know, what, yeah, what do you think? So many really great questions there, um, both about like what it looks like and then how we get there. Um, so what it looks like, I'll start with that because that in a way is the, it's the most debated question. So is this an integrated state? You know, United States is or United States are, right? The sort of mm. Gramma mm. grammar of, of the states was resolved at the end of the Civil War. And grammatically, they started being, from the 14th Amendment, they started being called, you know, an, a single entity when they weren't before. Um, Myanmar is much more like the United States before the Civil War, where they're more of a, a collection of states that have never truly been integrated. Um, now, the military has been fighting against that, but their version of integration has been very chauvinistic, right? They want all the ethnic minorities to feel lucky to be a part of this broader thing under a general sort of Burman hegemony. And what that means is very vague, and people like me are spending time trying to figure out what, um, what that looks like. 
but generally it's not something that most ethnic minority people feel very uh, happy about being integrated into. Okay, so that's one vision of what democracy might look like. Um, and we could even compare this to sort of like white hegemony in America. You know, black people, brown people are being told, look, you're allowed to be a part of America, and this is Trump, right? As long as you understand that you're never quite gonna be as American as the white people. And that's the sort of white grievance politics we see in America. There are some interesting parallels between the sort of white privilege and Burman privilege uh, that we see in Myanmar. So how do you deconstruct Burman privilege? Well, that's a very difficult question, but I think what a lot of people are talking about um, in terms of what democracy could look like is a federal structure one that keeps Myanmar together. It doesn't fragment it into a bunch of landlocked um, sovereigns in the middle of Southeast Asian uplands, but rather gives people, gives these groups a lot more autonomy to run their own governance structures and loosely federates them into a union uh, rather than as it is right now being run as a pretty centralized state. And I think that would go a long way towards getting to the democracy that, that resonates more with people who don't want to feel like they are a part of Myanmar in certain ways, but they also feel like they're a part of their uh, ethnic um, group and they're also a part of their regional group. And I think that those different levels of identities uh, need to be attended to. And um, could a situation where the military is active in politics get there? That's a much more difficult question. That's kind of your second question, which is mm -hmm. how would we actually get there? Um, would it require an international protectorship, which of course, even mentioning that gives sucker to the right-wingers in the military. Because mm. as soon as you mention that, of course. Alan, why did you mention that? But like around the issue, people were saying, the only way you can get them to not continue this genocide is if you allow the UN to run essentially a safe zone in, in Northern Rakhine State. And the military loves that kind of talk because it's like a violation of sovereignty. And they come out with statements like, we will fight for every last inch of our land and wow. all this mm -hmm. sort of- ridiculous. And then you get the people on your side and with their, yeah. So as a result, how do you get there with uh, a military? And gosh, I, uh, I don't, I don't want to make it seem like I'm punting on this issue. I just think it's a very difficult one um, that I don't have a great answer for. And I think will require um, a, a change from within the military uh, about what they think their role in the country is and what they're, they're willing to allow, um, it, what, what kind of federalism they're willing to allow. So basically, U.S. probably shouldn't make Myanmar like the 51st state. It's not. <laughs> it's not. We shouldn't go in there. It's not. No. Let's do That's DC overstepping. first. Yeah. DC, DC, DC first. Agreed. Puerto Rico, maybe second. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a nice balance. Yeah. We got some loose ends to tie up. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get there. Um, but that does speak to an interesting broader issue, which is that, you know, the global context has changed. And I don't think that's necessarily for, for the worse. I mean, mm. you know, you're kind of like think tank people in DC are lamenting the decline of US soft power because of the Trump uh, era. But I've always been a little bit leery about US soft power because it's so darn hypocritical, right? It mm. decides which human rights cases it cares about and ignores the ones it doesn't. And hence, it can't really be an honest broker the way that it thinks it is. Um, now, this opens up uh, a global right-wing um, populism, which we've seen. But I think it also opens up a global left-wing populism with the Mercator countries, you know, despite the failings of, of Venezuela. And I think, um, I don't know. I mean, it's one of those situations where um, 
what looks like anarchy to some people is freedom to others. Um, right. And I think that's kind of what's going on right now at a lot of different fractal levels in the world today at the, you know, the global system, but also at the level, like if you're in Myanmar, the old people are like, oh, there's no one in charge. And the young people are like, no one's in charge, thank goodness. And um, that doesn't mean that like a radical libertarianism should be endorsed. It's just to keep in mind that in the Myanmar context, when the state has never cared for people, it's not like having less state is suddenly going to be like, oh, where am I going to get my social security check? There's none of that. And I think that's mm. a really important issue to keep in mind is mm. that we have these sort of presuppositions about what a government should do. They should defend and allow the population to flourish. The Myanmar state has never been that way. For hundreds of years, it's never been like that. It doesn't mean it's evil or wrong. It's just a different way of doing governance. Um, and as a result, people were left to their own devices a lot more. When they could reproduce their livelihoods, when there were enough resources to do that, when the global political economy was structured such that they could export their rice and it was valued, this was not a bad place to be without the state. But now you have a, a vastly changing political economy where primary products don't matter as much if you're a producer of them, if you're a local farmer, if your land is worth a lot more for the minerals that are underneath it or how it can be used as a sort of, uh, I guess we might call like a speculative commodity mm -hmm. than for what you can produce on it. That's a very dangerous situation for millions of people around the country. And what's really fascinating and, and troubling about the last 10 years of transition is that life for normal people, not like you know relative elites in Yangon, but like a dirt farmer in Maguey, things have actually gotten worse. And really? I think that's the sort of reality that we need to keep in mind is that um, the way this cuts both ways, the freedoms of the last 10 years have been kind of undermined for many people by the what we might call the precarity of their situations. The fact that they can't reproduce their livelihoods at the local level and they have to move around the country and they even have to move around the region to find jobs. And these are the issues that the state is totally ill-equipped to deal with because they've never thought this way. And mm -hmm. uh, as a result, you know, as my activists would always say, who will take the responsibility for our lives? That doesn't mean that they're demanding that someone do it. Most of the time they're saying, we're the ones who are going to do that because no one else will. But it definitely means that this is a different kind of state than, than we're used to. I don't really know how I got down this, this rabbit hole, but I think it's, it is important when people think about Myanmar to understand the sort of expectations that people have from their governing institutions, but mm. also how the general sort of, I don't want to call it a social contract because it's definitely not contractual, but the sort of received relationship mm. between the governed and the governing apparatuses is much yeah. less what Foucault would call biopolitical, meant to yeah. allow life to flourish. It's not committed to that. It's uh, committed to something very different and very um, a lot more austere, but that's not a, uh, good for people anymore. And I think this is a global problem that people are finding, whether in Burma or parts of Africa, where people just don't find jobs anymore. The mm. political economy doesn't reward laborers. And so what is going to happen to a planet of 8 billion people when 6 billion of them can't find work? I know that wasn't necessarily where you expected this to go, but that's a sort of background of, of these kinds of conflicts because your state ultimately is going to have to start thinking about those issues. Yeah. I Don't mean, worry ever about going off topic, Elliot, because everything <laughs> you're saying is educating me tenfold. Like, honestly, I could listen to you talk forever about this stuff because I just feel like I'm getting so much information. I'm blushing. Thank you. <laughs> it looks good on you. Um, so, okay, just to touch back on what you just said, um, as far as kind of this, um, this kind of reshuffling or restructuring of, of how, you know, your day-to-day -day labors across the world 
um, need to be able to make more money. I mean, because obviously you're, you're seeing this everywhere. I mean, the states as well and with government subsidies and, and all this stuff that's going on. Um, like, how do you fix that to where it works? Like, how does even yeah, one company, is, country fix that to where it works, let alone Myanmar? Yeah, and I, I don't think it's a problem. I mean, right now, because we live in this fragmented nation state system, mm. countries are trying to solve it through basic income grants. Um, they're basically trying to, so there's a really interesting book that you're, that it's quite readable uh, called Give a Man a Fish, which of course plays on that old joke of teach a man to fish. Mm. And it's about basic income grants in Southern Africa. So in, in uh, Zambia, um, I think Namibia and South Africa, which basically says, look, our whole political economy uh, in a country like Burma produces X amount of stuff. Now, who gets to own that stuff? Who gets to extract it and and take the rent, which is the rent is a, a fancy economics term. Well, not that fancy, but concept, which means the difference in how much you get for the thing when you sell it for how much it costs you to get it out of the ground, right? If you're talking about a resource, if you're talking about an innovation, you come up with a new idea, you're able to sell it for a huge amount more than what it costs you to produce because no one else can reproduce that thing. And that's why we have intellectual property laws is that we want to reward innovation, but that's still just a sort of rent. Now, if you're a libertarian, you believe that Alan goes out and through his own innovation and hard work comes up with the idea that he should just then be able to take of in perpetuity, right? No one should be able to steal that from you and it's actual theft if we tax you. Now, uh, someone like Ferguson who wrote this book called Give a Man a Fish would say, well, Alan is a product of his society. He has benefited from public institutions like schools and healthcare that allowed him to be healthy and smart enough to come up with that innovation that is then able to make him a bunch of money. Hence, that product that he created isn't really his, it belongs to the collective. Now, here's uh -huh. the fun question. Where does that collective start and where does it end, right? Is the world the collective? Is the nation state? Is the community? Is the city? But these are the questions that people really need to start thinking about because where you end up being born, the sort of birth lottery, and what kind of, you know, whether you're able to create that innovation or, you know, you're born on an oil field that allows you to get enormously wealthy is a question that we, as a planet, are going to start having to think about. And this, of course, gets into not just the issue of, of reproducing people's labor and allowing them to have enough resources to not starve, but uh, the sort of unbridled, you know, uh, you know, move fast and break things capitalism is running up against the limits of the planet itself, as we know. So those two major issues, and I, I spend a lot of time teaching this in, in my classes, are these sort of interesting constraints that are uh, forcing political thought, you know, from political philosophy to how public policy is done to may have a real serious rethink. And of course, amazingly enough, uh, vested interests don't want to have that rethink because they're doing quite well, thank you very much. Mm. And they're gonna punt mm -hmm. these problems to the future generations. But if you're a poor person around the world who, gosh, you would love to work and it's symbolically valorized to work. You know, we've spent the last thousand years of our state-based society telling people that they're only worth something if they work hard for it. And we've created ideologies based on telling them that if they work hard, they will succeed, the American dream. But we're starting to see that fall apart, not just in America, of course, but lots of places. And so how we distribute resources, what Ferguson calls how we give a rightful share is going to take some pretty radical restructuring. And that's why like those of us pointy-headed professors who still kind of believe in, in a 
in communism think that, or at least something like it, believe that capitalism can't really succeed uh, under or can't sustain itself under its current conflict uh, organization. But it's not enough to say, okay, everyone, we're going to start redistributing resources tomorrow. And, and I think that's the most interesting aspect of this is that our, our desires, our subjectivities, who we are as people is so tied up in these ideologies and also these wonderful things that we're able to create and enjoy within a capitalist uh, society. So to be able to come tell people, oh yeah, that idea that you, we've been telling you since you were a little kid that you should work hard and decide which you know, profession you're gonna be and grow up and have lots of cool uh, designer toys, that suddenly you can't have that dream anymore. That is a huge, huge wake up call. And people don't wanna have it. And I think that's the biggest problem. I think oddly enough at an economic level, this actually isn't so difficult to solve. We have a bunch of global institutions. Okay, yeah, it's really fucking hard to solve. Uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> I was like, um, tell us how. You have like, the answer, Elliot. We're gonna solve all the problems right now on this yeah. podcast. <laughs> I'm saying we, but I'm saying we could if we could get past the fact that we kind of like bred into us this sort of competition. The fact that in order to participate in, in life means to like play the game the right way, uh, and I think like we that's the, that's the thing that keeps me that, up at night. That's not that how my, humans I, operate. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna take a deep dive into a wormhole now. But like yeah. humans don't operate that way. That's not what we do. There's always going to be so, somebody that's going to take advantage I love of that. This. I love this question. I totally like, agree. Like it doesn't, we don't it operate won't work. That way, right? But what I would that we can't say, operate that way. Maybe I, we can operate or, that way. Or it's not how we are. Yeah. So but here's the thing. And I think it's what Alan is going to speak to is that as an anthropologist, I spend my time, my, my life looking at all the different and weird, wonderful, sometimes brutal ways that humans construct their ways of looking at the world. And the only conclusion that I think that anthropologists would feel comfortable in taking is that there is no one way of being human. There's lots and okay. lots of different ways of being human. And that both like alarms me, but also gives me hope because it means that, and I, I totally, I'm not like, banging you, Justin, for this, you know, idea that human nature is a certain way, mm. because you're right to an extent that human nature has been structured in this way for so long that it seems like it's natural. And that, of course, is the, the trick of ideology, is right. to convince you that the thing that is normal is the thing that will always be. And of course, mm. the, the challenge of critique is to open up what we take for granted and say, maybe there's a, a way to do it otherwise. Um, and Alan, you may have put this more eloquently than I did. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it is an issue oh. that I... I mean, my students bring this up all the time. They're mm. like, how can we really change? Uh, and not just for the fact that it's human nature, but you know, Justin, you brought up the defector issue, right? It, mm. it's, it's one of those you know, tragedy of the commons issues where, uh, or sometimes called a prisoner's dilemma, where we would all get along much better if we could commit to path A, but yeah. everyone has an incentive to F everyone else over and go to path yeah. B and hence, things unravel as it's called in, in game theory. I mean, you so literally have to make that change in people's ideology all at the yes. same time for yeah. everyone. And, Which, and now it just becomes, for me, it becomes fiction. Yeah. Well, I think you have to make it sexy to do things differently. Mm. Uh, and that's why, like, I mean, obviously you can choose which particular set of, um, of uh, social media to consume to either make you make you feel that that's possible or make you feel really pessimistic about it, right? Mm. If you go on the Instagrams of the you know kids with daddy's yachts or whatever those things are called, then it's quite depressing because those <laughs> fuckers look like they're having a really good time. Yeah. Um, and I can't tell them that their soul is empty, even though I believe it, because they are having a good time. And who am I to tell them that they're not? Um, right. But I do think that. Uh, 
and, and this isn't vanguardism either, right? This isn't like, mm. you know, we need celebrities that, you know, living a different way is sexy. But I think that uh, it, to speak to your point, it has to be at the level of sort of, uh, I use sexiness as a joke, but at the level of desire, we have to make mm. living a different way, something that is more fulfilling. And when people look at those kids on yachts, they're not envious of them, but they just feel sad. Okay, so Elliot, I want- Interesting. Yeah, that's, I'm letting, I have to let a lot of this sink in. I'm gonna have a whole like processing moment after we're done with this <laughs> podcast by myself. Um, but I, I wanna go back to something you said that scared you and scares me as well. And I think it touches on what Jim was talking about too. It's the idea that there is no one way to be human. Humanity is not a preordained uh, situation mm -hmm. necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, but if that's the case, and there is no one way to really be human, how could we have one way of governance? How can we choose, like, how, how can democracy even really work then if, if there really is, if the only constant in our humanity is that there's not really a constant, then how yeah. can we pick one way of governance as a, how do we come together as a society and all decide, there has to be some things, right? Because we, we get along pretty well with certain societal norms, right? Like we, we choose, to as a society to condemn murder, right? Or to mm. condemn certain things, right? So there, there, there seems to be some constants that we can point to, but if we're always gonna be different in the other areas, like how, how do we come together? Yeah, I think that some of the ways that people have gotten around this in the past is sort of this idea of syndicalism, which is like, um, you know, you, you allow people to create their sort of communal ways of, of living as long as they don't ratchet up to a sort of uh, colonial desire to encompass the world. And I think one of the problems of, of capitalism is that it really requires a, and it has an expansionary ethos. And so it's very difficult for it to reproduce itself um, without expanding to new markets and to colonize new life worlds as it's sometimes mm -hmm. called. Um, now, that's not really a way of answering your question, which I think is, is, is deeper, um, which is that if we live in a planet of fixed and finite resources, um, do we need a global government of some structure to uh, allow the different projects of humanity that people might have reason to pursue from not encroaching on one another or on the limits of that planet? The other problem that's related to that is that, and this kind of harkens to my advisor at Yale, who's this guy called James C. Scott, who has a book called Seen Like a State, and uh, The Art of Not Being Governed. He's a pretty committed political anarchist, but he writes um, books that, you know, a lot of, that kind of make it out of academia, that cross over, kind of like that Give a Man a Fish book. Um, he's very skeptical of state-based organizations ever not leading to a radical kind of simplification for efficiency's sake that ends up stifling human creativity and leading to a sort of tyranny. And so on one hand, we need a global governance in order to prevent the uh, letter, lesser angels of our nature, um, you know, whether through greed or avarice or, or the murder that you spoke of from being dominant. But we also have to create a way of preventing that very structure that would limit us from being um, totalitarian in at least in explicit nature, or at least just in sort of leading to brutal sets of exclusions where our global structure says it's being just, but it's actually preventing certain people from living lives they might want to. Now, this is of course very far afield from where we started. And I don't, mm. 
I wish I had better answers than to just lay out some of the, the challenges. What I would say is that we're very far away from considering what that might look like. Um, and I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing or not, because I think what you know Justin would say is that, well, how are we going to get there uh, without everyone, you know, snapping our fingers and immediately having a different consciousness. It's going to have to be led through the institutions that we have today. And so it's going to start by having nation states that we all exist in start to behave a little bit differently. So I've got, I've got a two-part response to that. Um, I, think, um, I, I, I think the only way you get to a scenario where like everybody all of a sudden agrees on one ideology is you, you have to have an abrupt, sharp thing to respond to globally um mm. aliens like covid pandemic. right right global like pandemic. i mean I, that's the only well global pandemic but it's not abrupt enough you didn't have you're not it's, it's not people not i mean it's not you don't have enough people dying fast enough for that to be really abrupt like it's not and you've got you've got some countries ignoring it depends on where you right? are so even world. but even with covid you've got different countries that have different, different ideologies on how to handle it right it's not big enough for yeah. the entire globe to be like, oh snap, we need to get together real quick on this. Like, yeah. so that's, I think that's the only way that you can really reset a global ideology um, as a whole, right? Yeah. And then even after that, like even if it is the aliens, you know, you start the reset and then it's gonna start to splinter even after you do try and create this one ideology. And, and again, I know I'm going back to kind of my way of thinking as opposed to what uh, Elliot's been saying. Um, so then there's that. And then what was my other thing I wanted to say real you quick? You did have two points. I, I do. And now I forgot <laughs> the second point. Um, it'll, maybe it'll come back to me. But aliens? Yeah. yeah, was it yeah, aliens? I, mean, I think that there's a sort of, well, the reason why um, global disaster movies are really popular is I think it, it gives us a freedom to imagine uh, a sort of radical moment of restructure that mm -hmm. we can't get to on our own. Um, the COVID example is pretty interesting, but we also see how it kind of almost immediately breaks down into a sort of crabs in a barrel rushing to protect, um, you know, the, the uh, interests of nation states or the, the interests of the people, the elites within those nation states. And so rather than it being a moment when people are quote unquote coming together, it becomes actually uh, pretty divisive. Maybe aliens would, you yeah. know, uh, would be better. Maybe. There's a um, maybe, uh, but I think like what it, it there's a sort of risk in in waiting for the aliens to come because as you as you show in your you know by working through that example, what's to say that we're even going to stay you know united yeah. so to speak? And I think that that's why it's going to take a messier or whatever change ends up coming. It's going to be messier and less immediate. And I, I think for that reason. Uh, it has a chance of being a little bit more sustainable, though. Yeah, I, my second thought was actually um, when you start talking about when we react to these types of things as nation states, is um, the idea of, of what government will look like probably in the future, um, 15, 20 years, as far as us being controlled to these geographical areas uh, and, it, and things kind of revolving in a geopolitical framework. All that looks like it might disappear with regards to just things being controlled via the internet. I mean, you're looking at the decentralization of currencies um, and decentralization of, uh, of really how culture develops. 
And um, all that seems to be moving towards governments, a governance that is not located to a geography, right? And so now it's not a nation state, it's a state of, oh, where, of idea. And what, is, what does that look like? And then how do you, and then even with that, how do you create this ideological yeah. framework as a whole on the globe with that? Like, and who, and who creates an ideological yeah. framework that should be able to subscribe to an entire globe? Of yeah, people? which is like, why, I mean, you're looking at just the different types of ways people are educating themselves online, whether they be reasonably legit to just really, you believe the earth's flat. And it's like, how do you even begin to, like, how do you create an ideology where you can really set everybody inside of it and be like, this is how we're all gonna help each other now. Yeah, um, I have a story that leads to this and I think it both shows the opportunities and the constraints. So mm -hmm. I've been doing field work with uh, Rohingya stateless people for the last couple of years who are like fleeing the genocide. And many of them end up in KL, uh, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, maybe 200,000 people in Malaysia, uh, Rohingya, probably 100,000 in KL, or maybe a couple, I mean, the numbers are a little bit hard to get um, a, a number on. Um, but what's interesting about this group is that uh, as stateless people, they kind of, uh, interesting is the wrong word, uh, tragic, is that they exist in this space of perpetual sort of exclusion that reproduces itself over generations. So Rohingya have been in Malaysia for, at this point, many, a couple of generations. Their kids are growing up there, but because they are stateless, they're not allowed to go to school, which I think is particularly brutal. And they're not allowed to legally work, and it's very difficult for them to access health services. Now, this is Malaysia, mind you, a country that's also um, a Muslim minority, majority country that Rohingya want to go to because they feel safer there. Um, and their politicians have used this crisis as a way of saying, of essentially making political hay by saying, look, we are caring for the Rohingya. But when you read the fine print, it turns out that they're relegated to this perpetual underclass where they have to do the dirty, demeaning and dangerous jobs that Malaysians don't want to do. And they are forced to do them because they have to work illegally. Okay, so that's the scenario. Now, what this group that's run by a Rohingya guy and a team of Rohingya folks is doing is using blockchain technology, taking biometric data in encrypting it on blockchain as a way of developing digital and virtual IDs that will allow um, these people who are right now are stateless and, and without an identity to access bank accounts. Because right now banks aren't allowed legally to um, lend to uh, stateless people because of post 9-11 financial law, which said that every bank must KYC, know your customer, uh, um, make sure that terrorists, terrorists aren't getting uh, money. And like that's, uh, you know, all and well, but what it means for stateless people is, is that if you don't have a state, you can't get a bank account. Now, <clears throat> whether or not a bunch of Rohingya are gonna uh, create livable futures just through this project is I think perhaps difficult to imagine. But what is really fascinating about it is that we've talked for since the eighties about globalization breaking down um, the sort of borders that allow nation states to remain hegemonic and dominant. And here you have actually a group of, like the Rohingya who are forced to live in that post-Westphalian space, right? And they're without a state, but they physically, their bodies still must be within certain states. And I think what's interesting about them is that <clears throat> as elites, uh, and we are globally elites, we have blue passport that allow us to pretend that we are not 
you know, governed by the United States in, in my particular case. And as much as I disagree with the United States, I still do benefit from the affordances of that passport. So I get to pretend to be a global cosmopolitan. I get to talk about how fundamentally problematic and maybe even evil, I think a lot of things the US is doing, but I get to benefit from having that citizenship. Well, let's imagine this is slightly different when you actually don't get to have that bedrock of citizenship to, to, uh, to use, let's say you're Rohingya. Now, on one hand, they're able to use the sort of affordances of these new digital technologies to give themselves an identity, but they still have to exist. Their bodies still are in place on nation state spaces. And so the reason why I bring this up is that <clears throat> um, for certain kind of subjects, uh, those of us like us who speak English, who have command of the, you know, global cosmopolitan symbolic world, we know how to get by in, in that space. We know how to operate. Uh, the world is much more open and we can imagine a global future that looks quite different and is less um, territorialized, right? Less tied up in a particular territory than someone like um, a Rohingya who some people would call an abject cosmopolitan. They're cosmopolitan in the sense that they're global and they're not rooted in a particular place, but they're abject or they're uh, they're basically reduced to a position where they have to be like that. And I think what's interesting is that are we the future or are the Rohingya the future? And, and what I mean by that is, <clears throat> are we wow. becoming a world that's a little bit more, um, you know, deterritorialized, but not necessarily in an emancipatory way, in a way that, um, you know, as I spoke to a, a couple minutes ago with the, the fact that states are no longer looking out for their citizens, is that kind of what happens in a, in a global world where the nation state becomes less um, relevant? Does it become a scramble, a global scramble for people to find any place where they can fit back into political economies that will sustain them or communities of care that will support them? Uh, and that's a, that's a particularly dark version of this sort of decline in the nation state because like I'm not a huge nation state fan but I am a fan of people having the resources and the opportunities to live lives that they have reason mm -hmm. to value and I think the risk of <clears throat> the decline of the nation state under unbridled capitalism where 12 individuals control half of America's wealth for instance mm -hmm. or maybe it's even down to three um, is that you end up having not enough to go around as Thanos mm -hmm. would say <laughs> Well, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh man, these aren't unsolvable problems, but they're yeah. certainly they're. It seems like sometimes we're not thinking enough about them because we. But they, I think we see a sort of confluence of the prosaic concerns, like the concerns, the bread and butter concerns, and these more global concerns as people start to realize. And this is why I still kind of believe in a in a future that is a little bit less mm. about capitalism because I, I just don't think I don't think this thing I don't think this thing sustains. Yeah, I mean, I, I just mm. feel like. Too many people are watching TikTok videos to really get this going, man. Oh yeah. Well, we gotta get this. We I gotta mean, get the TikTok to be more committed towards yeah. uh, Marxist revolution. Can I <laughs> offer? No, no. I'm yeah. so glad you guys brought this up. TikTok to Marxist revolution directly into what I wanted to share just now, and I get both of your opinions. I respect both of you guys a lot. Yeah. Um, I want to share a story of hope, um, based almost exactly in what we were just talking about. Uh, getting TikTok videos to be able to express more of a Marxist point of view through their content. Um, I don't know if you guys know about Clubhouse. I don't know if you guys have been on Clubhouse or mm. if you tried it or if you're familiar with it. Um, heard about it. I've heard, not, I've heard murmurings. I, I'm okay. an Android um, user, so I can't be on it yet. Yeah, it's for the best. I'm. I, we're not ready for you yet as a community. I'm ready. I'm ready to um, sign me up. As soon as it gets to Android, no, no. I'm in there. We know you're ready. We're not ready for you. 
is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, so I guess for anyone who's watching who, who maybe hasn't kind of read a, a 101 on it or something like that, just a brief little introduction. Clubhouse is a new social media app and it's, uh, it's purely audio based. Um, and it's, it's group driven and community building. And uh, the way it works is it's kind of like podcasts mixed with Twitter, mixed with keynote speeches, mixed with just kind of like a networking room. Mm. Um, and I just want to share this one story because I got into it where our friend Ann uh, brought me in the invite. And in the first couple of days I started, you know, I couldn't really sleep because I was so curious as to what people were saying. And I fell into a 17 hour running conversation um, talking about this golden moment for China to be able to have open communication. And that was the title. And it was one of the biggest rooms and it had a, a few K, maybe like three or four K people listening to it. Ah. And so I just tuned in, right? And so the way, that, the way that this works is that you have a couple moderators and there's a stage and they can bring people from the audience up to share comments and then move them back to the audience. And you may have 10 to 15 speakers on stage, um, but then thousands of people listening in the audience. And my mind was blown because I was listening to Chinese citizens speaking in tears about what these last few months have meant for them to be able to hear ideas that they've never heard before in their lives. And I was able to wow. hear uh, some Chinese citizens speaking with Taiwanese people, sharing their differentiating understanding of what's going on. And I just, I heard, I heard this Chinese student who was young and he said, he's like, you have to understand from our point of view and how we're educated, we were never even given the option to think that Taiwan is not a part of China. Yeah. It's not even something that we realized was debated in the world until I just now heard you say this. And, and it was, it was stunning to hear these people have these, these kind of decentralized, it's like, what Justin was talking about is how do we, um, how do we through a decentralized network spread an ideology across in a geopolitical way, right? And I was just, I was stunned. And literally in the middle of me listening to it, the people in China started reporting that China had blocked it. In the middle of our yeah. conversations, I was listening to these people talk and how and I felt how depressed they got all of a sudden because they had access to VPN. So they were still able to access it but it's no longer accessible without a VPN, which means it's never really gonna fly on a massive yeah, scale. It's not right? legal. And so I just there wanna bring that up to you guys. There was an article this morning in New York Times about this very phenomenon. And I, I right. think that's where I had seen it. I didn't know it was Clubhouse until you mentioned yeah. it. Yeah, it, it's it's, uh, it's a really powerful story. And I think um, like what, what it brings to mind is, is uh, how like America has a really free and open public sphere and yet we end up choosing to, um, you know, participate in, in different, more isolated echo chamber type type things because of what it, um, because of the prior uh, ideological commitments we have and how they end up reinforcing them, uh, these different echo chambers. And I think what's fascinating about those two things in, in juxtaposition is the power of, um, you know, the the epiphanies that can come from a new exposures, but also how in America recently, we've seen how people um, are uh, affected by what we might see as truth. And I think uh, that's the, I, 
I'm I don't I'm not trying to throw water on what Alan just brought up, but rather no, no, to no. kind of synthesize that the challenge is mm. to, um, places like Clubhouse, but also trying to think through why people would be completely uh, why why a Chinese national, even if they were on Clubhouse, might still uh, reject that that truth that seems so plain to the rest of us. Or and there's a lot of that. There was a lot of debate, Elliot. It was, I, it was so interesting, and it gave me hope that that maybe through social media. And Justin knows I'm not a big social media guy. I'm not. I'm not a fan. But this changed my view on in terms of what social media could do. Um, if if put in the right hands, if yeah, used appropriately. That's amazing. Yep. And so one of the things about Clubhouse is that it is elitist, Justin. It's, that's probably my least favorite. Super elitist at that the moment. Can, yeah. Well, it's in beta. It's in beta right now. Yeah. They will open it up to you. But um, <laughs> but the, the, the fact that the kind of general unwritten ethos of these communities so far, at least the ones that I, and it's it's a little confirmation bias. It's, it's self-selecting because you go to the rooms that you want to. Like there are rooms talking about get ass now. And mm -hmm. that's not a room I go to, right? Oh, come but on, Alan. The rooms, you, can, you can let, this is a safe space. It's a safe space. not a room I go to continuously. Um, but it actually, the fact that you said safe space is, is exactly what I'm talking about, mm. is that the rooms that mm. I have chosen, so far it's been very sincere, very authentic, mm. very well-intentioned and well-meaning. And like, but it makes me worry about what Justin says, that if our human nature is not necessarily like that on a massive scale, what happens, that won't be that yeah. way all the time yeah. you know it won't stay that way so it's well this has been really i've i've learned a lot i've really enjoyed having this conversation i didn't expect to get all the way to clubhouse room in china fortunately yeah. i do i do have to run um no worries we, we sh i mean i mean I, i've got things to do elliot like i'm, I'm yeah so yeah. busy right now i've got i gotta run actually i gotta go do a thing yeah, yeah. Don't don't ask what I'm running to. Yeah, exactly. I'll, I won't ask you if you want to. Well, I'm sure you have like I don't know, students to teach or children to tend to. Yeah, let's, lessons let's say to that. plan. Let's say that. Okay, <laughs> Elliot. Not, thank you so much, man. Like honestly, yeah, yeah appreciate it, man. It's been crazy enlightening. And let's go hang out in person sometime soon. I, I feel like that's on me because I haven't chased oh, you down to to make sure we go have yeah. a beer. I got a big deadline in a, in nine days, and hopefully after that will be will be a little bit less crazy by then. We'll have a little bit of knowledge about where the immediate future is going. Um, but until then, uh, keep your eyes on on what's going on in Myanmar, and um, thanks for your interest in it. I know that people there appreciate it. Yeah, man. Hey, man. Good stuff, Thank dude. You. Later, buddy. All right. Thank you. Whew. Well, that was an education. Justin. How great is he? He is my favorite, and I want to join his class as a student, which I'm yeah. pretty sure I can't do. So, I, so he was just modeling part-time in Bangkok back in like 2005, him and his gorgeous Harvard doctor wife. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, not surprising. The man's a gem. Uh, yeah. Honestly, just Obviously. being able to have a conversation with someone that knowledgeable, mm. and not just that knowledgeable, but that thoughtful and mindful about the about the entire situation it's uh it was very educational man. yeah i'm um, still i'm still reeling on it i'm proud yeah man lots to think about we're gonna have to have him back soon agreed um anyway guys thank you so, so much for joining are we podcasting yet the uh podcast where alan and i are still trying to figure out 
if this is a podcast or not. But we're sure it's a YouTube channel. That that much definitely we know. on YouTube, which you guys yes, should like is. and subscribe. That's right to the YouTube channel. If you're on Instagram, this is not the YouTube channel. You would go to the YouTube channel, which is going to be in a link that you click on, and then go to that YouTube link and then like and subscribe. If you're currently on Instagram, you've probably already liked the Instagram channel. But feel free to also engage, comment, share. Um, and do all that fun stuff that needs to be done that people do on the social media. Oh, and click the bell thing. That's on YouTube, right? The bell's on YouTube? I think they get it, Justin. I Is think there a they, bell? they got it. They're, okay. uh, they're tech literate, so, and, and we're proud of you for it, guys. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you guys again on the next episode.